0: nō mai, mai, welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tang. Today, we go through it all with Louisa Wall. Her achievements, her challenges, and her relationship with later's leadership.
1: There are teams within teams, and I wasn't in the team.
0: Then, as the government decides the next step in responding to he puapua, is New Zealand ready for more Māori co-governance?
2: It's, it's like gravity, it's, you, you, you can't define it.
0: We will have that debate for you shortly. Labour MP Louisa Wall has had an extraordinary life. Before being elected to Parliament, she was a black fern and a silver fern. As a List MP and then the Member for Manurewa, she achieved significant legislative changes, including marriage equality. But it's a complicated legacy. Louisa Wall has found herself on the outer with members of her own party. She was never made a Minister, and in 2020 she was sensationally deselected by Labour in Manurewa. Louisa Wall is leaving Parliament for a new role. Late this week, she and I sat down at her home in Manurewa. We're sitting here, April 2022, more than a decade since you first set foot in Parliament. As of today, New Zealanders can marry whomever they love. People are better protected from revenge porn and female genital mutilation. They can access abortions via safe zones. Their names can be recorded on their children's birth certificates even if they're deceased. And that's you. That is all
1: you. That's democracy, Jack, and that's also Parliament. Uh, And I've had um, the incredible privilege of serving the people of New Zealand in our Parliament.
0: Let me ask then, what is it that makes you, objectively, so much more effective than the majority of your colleagues in achieving legislative change?
1: Uh, the Very much about my personality uh, but also I think about how I see my role and I decided pretty early on that if I was in a privileged position to sit in Parliament to make laws uh, to better people's lives then obviously then I needed law reform and I needed to be championing uh, different pieces of law reform uh, based on the different mandates that I had. Um, and so marriage equality for example came because I was the chair of Labor's Rainbow Caucus and as the chair I took on relationship equality and that meant being the champion for the marriage equality legislation. So many of the law reforms I've proposed have come through either the mandate of my party, the mandate that I had within Parliament. I was the you know, co-chair of the Commonwealth Women Parliamentarians for nearly eight years um, and that is how we got FGM or female genital mutilation change and then the mandate of from the people of Manurewa. So I think I've just picked up the ball and run with it actually, Jack, and and kept very focused on the, the goal line and scoring tries.
0: Is there one moment, one little instance from your time in Parliament that really stands out as a particular highlight from your career?
1: I do have to say that the Paige Harris birth registration bill tugged at my heart in ways that... Um, meant I had to do everything I could to help this little girl and her husband and the family, and actually remembering the legacy of Catherine. And when I heard the story and I realised that there was something that could be done in spite of others having said that they couldn't help them, um, I just then very systematically went about following the standing orders and always with the consent of the family. Um, And a lot of the times the family have to give you quite vulnerable information for you to be able to then progress um, their need and and change the law or to find a solution um, that has now meant that, yes, Paige Harris, um, her mum, Catherine Harris, is on her birth certificate. So I think that does probably speak to um, how I see my role, which is very solution-focused. And as I said before, you'd find ways to help people because we're in very privileged positions, we have a lot of power, we have an ability to help, and I think that is my job, to help.
0: Why do you think you're not a minister?
1: I'm not a minister because the Prime Minister told me I would never be in her cabinet. And that was her decision, obviously, and I accepted that decision and then just got on with the job. There's a lot of other work to do in Parliament, Jack, Um, to chair select committees, to be the co-chair of the Commonwealth Women Parliamentarians. I'm I'm currently uh, chair of the IPU. So in spite of her not wanting me in her Cabinet, it didn't mean that there wasn't other ways, I guess, to contribute and to be an effective Member of Parliament.
0: Why didn't she want you in her Cabinet? Well,
1: see, I can't answer that question.
0: Why why do you believe that she didn't want you in her cabinet?
1: I think that it probably did go back to, um, I guess, the open contests that we've had um, in the Labour Party for leadership over the years and um, the time when she ran with um, Grant Robertson specifically. Um, I supported David Cunliffe. He was the man who... Um, I decided, had the skills to be the leader of the Labour caucus and take us to the election and I think um, that probably meant for them I was never part of their specific team, even though I was part of and am part of the Labour team. Um, that really for me can be the only explanation that there are teams within teams and I wasn't in the team that they ultimately decided would be the ones who sat around the the cabinet table and you have to accept decisions like that. I have no control over over that other than to continue to do my job to the best of my ability.
0: I suppose in a sense it goes beyond just cabinet though and I think of that extraordinary instance last year when speeches were being heard over the Zero Suicide Report in Parliament. And despite all the work that you'd done in that space, your own party blocked you from speaking. And perhaps I'm naive here, it struck me at the time that if the Prime Minister had wanted you to speak, you would have spoken. Outside of the Cabinet issue, Did you enjoy Jacinda Ardern's full support?
1: Well, I think they were messages probably not so subtle, uh, that it wasn't just she didn't want me in her cabinet. She was obviously very clear that she didn't want me in her caucus. And again, Jack, you're going to have to ask her about why she thought that there was no place for someone like me in the Labour Party caucus.
0: Did you not feel welcome in the caucus?
1: Particular um, lack of recognition of the work that I'd done on behalf of Labor, yeah, that hurt because it was so public. Um, But obviously, the kaupapa for me was the most important, and I was very grateful to have been given an opportunity to contribute to that debate.
0: You referenced in your resignation announcement the 2020 deselection in Manurewa. How did that experience affect you?
1: Profoundly in a way, because I'm a very principled person and I do believe in um, your actions actually undermine your integrity. And I think there were issues in that selection that undermine the integrity of the New Zealand Labour Party. And I think that's sad when we can um, not adhere uh, to pretty simple doctrines of um, electoral uh, principles that are quite fundamental to a functioning democracy.
0: Do you take it personally?
1: I had to take it personally to a degree because it was about me and it was about um, undermining the Labor Electorate Committee that I belonged to uh, for. Gosh, at that time, over 10 years. I mean, I've been a member of the Labour Party for over 25 years. Uh, and the people, the volunteers within our Labour electorate um, committee, some of them who were there when Roger Douglas was the MP, uh, throughout George Hawkins' tenure, and mine, a woman called Raywin Turner, who's now 82. You know, 40 years of voluntary service, and that didn't count. And they were just erased, basically, and our mandate as a group of people who pay the levy, who deliver those 23,000 pamphlets to ha- households around Manurewa, were just rendered a nullity, and that, for me, um, is probably the most upsetting, because Raywan essentially had nothing after that in terms of her community work, um, and I think that's wrong.
0: In the political commentariat in New Zealand there are sometimes murmurings or references never directly attributable to anyone that suggest you aren't a good team player. That's a line that often comes out. If you look back honestly over your career, considering Parliament can be an extremely stressful place at the best of times, have there been occasions when you haven't been a good team player?
1: I can understand how people in leadership would have thought um, that I haven't uh, been as responsive to their requests as I could have been. Um, but my rationale always has been to ensure that the legislation I was working on was going to progress to a point where it would be successful. And if we go back to marriage equality, for example, there were some issues about my framing of marriage equality, the fact I didn't leverage off civil unions, and the fact that I reached out across the parliament and was really clear I wanted to work, you know, with others. Because for me, the rainbow community have always been a political football. And I knew that unless I built really strong coalitions across the House, that at the next election, we would have, as we saw with... Colin Craig and the Conservatives, the rainbow community of football and there'll be pledges to repeal marriage equality. So it just didn't make sense. Plus, Labour didn't have the numbers. The reality at, at that time is I needed to work across the parliament. I needed the 27 national votes. I needed ACT. I needed, the, you know, the Greens have always been there, I have to say.
0: I have a curious so. political history question about that time. Okay. There was a, a senior Labour MP who, after you pushed marriage equality, reportedly caught you in a corridor and said, who the F do you think you are? Do you remember that?
1: Yes, it was actually in my office. Who was it? Um, That was Clayton Cosgrove, who came into my office. He heard me um, being interviewed on Radio New Zealand, and it was about the Labour Party's commitment to relationship equality. And I talked about the decision-making process that MPs would have to go through um, that if you're an electorate MP, some of them would consult and they would have to make up their minds, but that it was Labour Party policy. And as a list MP, he was offended that I'd even spoken about how people might vote, and that's what he did. He burst into my room and that's what he spat at me. I mean, I was told by uh, the chief of staff at the time that if I didn't do things that, um, the way that they wanted to do, then I was on my own, and I said, OK, I'm on my own. And I was happy to do do that and happy not to have lines and a narrative around leveraging off civil unions because civil unions was not about fundamental human rights. It wasn't about equality and non-discrimination. And in a lot of ways, it was was a (laughs) cop-out. All I've ever wanted is equality for LGBTIQ plus New Zealanders. And that is all I will ever fight for, and I will fight for the right to do that in a way that takes the majority of people with us. So in some instances I didn't take the leadership of my party because I disagreed with how they wanted to play the game. Most people do come in with wanting to progress and become a minister. And the way you do that is obviously to be part of the team and you think work diligently and... Um, I'm not saying you work under instruction, but you're you're, you're very much part of a process that hopefully will will produce an outcome. And I think for me, um, as I said before, I didn't go in with an aspiration for a role. I just wanted to use the role I had to make the lives of New Zealanders better. Um, So if that aspect of my attitude is slightly maverick... I'll take that, but I haven't wanted to be a maverick. All I've wanted to do is to be a good representative.
0: What you're saying is that perhaps too few MPs cast aside personal ambitions and put the kaupapa ahead of the office.
1: Pretty much, actually. I'm am I'm a kaupapa-driven person, Jack. For me, it's all about the kaupapa. If you haven't got the kaupapa, then what is it at the end of the day? Is it self-interest? Well, I'm not interested in self-interest.
0: Yeah, we uh, don't want the interview to stop either. Don't go anywhere, we're back after a short break. Kia ora, welcome back. Louisa Wall has taken a new role with MFAT as the ambassador for gender equality in the Pacific. After more than a decade in parliament, she will still be fighting for what she believes is right. I don't know if you're someone who has regrets. But what's top of the list of things left undone in Parliament?
1: Oh, there's always more to be done, Jack, and I've, I'm leaving two bills on the order paper, actually. One is about um, the protection of journalist sources, and for me, I think our fourth estate, I think journalism is incredibly important, and we must protect them, therefore we must protect those um, who give them inside information, whatever you may call it, but for the, for the betterment of, and the greater good of society. Um, and I've given that to my colleague in- Ingrid Leary, who, uh, as a journalist, I think will run with that ball and, and do a very good job. Um, and I've left um, an alcohol-related piece of legislation that started at Manurua Intermediate School. And it really is about empowering communities to take responsibility for how many liquor outlets are in our communities. And unfortunately, within the current law, um, we've almost created a property right. So if you are an existing license holder, you can't lose your license. Mm. You can only modify the conditions around your license. And I think that's wrong. I think that communities should have an ability to say, we actually don't want you to sell alcohol in our community anymore. And therefore that license shouldn't be renewed.
0: You did a lot of work in the China space in recent years. Does New Zealand go too soft on China?
1: I think New Zealand, um, idealistically, entered a trade agreement with China. And from our perspective, we thought that it would be mutually beneficial and it would contribute to the democratisation of China. Um, the reality of how China has used uh, entry into a global economy hasn't, has not been about democracy. You know, for them, it has been about manipulating um, capitalism. Um, they've had slaves. That's what the Uyghur people have been used for, slaves within their economy. So they've been able to undercut in terms of manufacturing. And many of us now are dependent on goods that we buy coming from from China. Um, and so we, we've we had divergent kind of values right from the beginning, um, but we've become incredibly dependent in, in some sectors on on China and now exporting to China to therefore provide good quality jobs. So the only real antidote is for us to diversify um, and to obviously um, seek FTAs with other countries. Um, but it's not that complex with China. I think like many other countries in the world, um, we are vulnerable because they economically have some levers over us. Mm. And they manipulate and use those for their own ends, and I, that's—I don't—that's th- not mutually beneficial. And we are going to have to rectify that situation. But we also need to stand up for the Uyghurs, for Indigenous Muslim minorities. We have to stand against forced organ harvesting. We have to stand against, um, you know, autocracies.
0: Labor was elected on big promises to fix the housing crisis, improve New Zealanders' mental health and to lift people out of poverty. I know that those are complex issues. I know we have faced a global pandemic. But when you think about life for New Zealanders today, compared to life for New Zealanders five years ago, do you think Labour and Government has lived up to its promises?
1: I think Labour and Government has tried to live up to its promises. I think we've tried to put into place the architecture for us to be able to measure how good the public system is in delivering all those objectives you've talked about, Jack. Um, I think where we've fallen down, so to speak, has been in the logistics, like how do we actually get this done? Um, But I do have to say, and I'm not trying to make excuses, but the pandemic has been debilitating for many countries I mean we've got a, a jib crisis We can't build houses without jib um, that has got nothing to do with the government mm. you know and so I think there needs to be a fair assessment of what we promised to do and what we've been able to do but also what we've committed to doing and um, I think we're still committed to doing so we've done a lot of good work we we, we have um, but I can understand the criticism because we're not moving as quickly as as some people think we should.
0: Tell me about the new role.
1: So the new role is one that will leverage off a lot of the work I've been doing um, in terms of the empowerment of women and girls and also representing and advocating for the LGBTIQ plus community. Um, so it's an ambassadorial role um, ba- based in the Pacific, um, focused on women's empowerment, women's equality, LGBTQI rights. Um, it'll be slightly challenging because I'm used to using my own voice um, to kind of advocate for change, but my job is to find the local voices. You know, the women within countries in the Pacific that need to be formally part of their decision making, whether it's advocating for their needs and aspirations or having a formal say in in their parliaments or bills before their parliaments. Um, It'll be an interesting role for me. As some people have said, I'm not very diplomatic, Um, but actually I I am copapa driven and I am all about community. So it'll be a different way of working, Um, but I'm really looking forward to representing New Zealand in a different context.
0: How many contexts is that now? Oh,
1: there's a few, but, I mean, my life's been about service and I got that from my dad um, and a lot of my whanau back in Waitahanui, so, you know, I'll keep doing what I'm doing. Um, I mean, if I, if I could wave a, a magic wand, I'd want homosexual law reform. the world. You know, 70 countries still, um, half of them are commonwealth countries. I'd want us to just rid all of our law books of this archaic law that has been a tool of colonisation. So for me, going into the Pacific, I feel that I do have some authenticity. New Zealand is a Pacific country. I'm indigenous to the Pacific and um, I look forward to working with our whanau uh, within Te Nui Akiwa to help make the lives of our collective citizens better. Good luck. Thank you.
0: Tenaquwe. Thank you very much for your time. That's Louisa Wall. She will make her valedictory address in parliament this Thursday. If you want to contact Q&A, please call it or my. These are our main platforms. You can contact us on email or find us on Twitter or on Facebook. Coming up, as cabinet considers her poor poor, David Seymour wants the opposite. He's with us live shortly. Welcome back to Q&A. Co-governance is a term which means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. For some, it's a way to realise the principles in the Treaty of Waitangi, guaranteeing partnership between the Crown and iwi over all governance matters in Aotearoa. For others, it's an anti-democratic, race-based principle that would mean Māori and non-Māori have different rights. The debate over co governance has been sparked in part by Hepuapua, a report which brainstormed ideas for the government's response to the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People. Tomorrow, Cabinet will consider feedback on the report. But I travelled to Pura Nui in Otako and sat down with one of Hepuapua's authors, Professor Jacinta Rudu, and I began by asking her to define co governance.
3: So I think co-governance is this amazing opportunity that we have here in Aotearoa, New Zealand to more formally enable a partnership between Māori and everyone else in this country to really value Māori decision-making, bring Māori into those decision-making tables and to really embrace and understand a Māori way of contributing and visioning to the future of Aotearoa, New Zealand.
0: He isn't law, but in any way, Does the vision you and your co-authors articulated break with the democratic principle of one person, one vote?
3: So He Pua Pua is, I think, is some incredible work that builds on the work of the Waitangi Tribunal over many, many years and many scholars, and I really acknowledge Moana Jackson here in this moment. So He Pua Pua, we think, encapsulates the vision of Te Tariti o Waitangi and those who signed in 1840 about our Teno-Rangatiratanga, Ka-Wanatanga, Spheres and an opportunity to grow our te ao tangata opportunities in that joint sphere. I very much see um, here poor as an opportunity to think about adding, māori, adding, adding to what we already have. Um, so it's an and end opportunity here for Aotearoa New Zealand to really enable and bring Māori values, Māori decision-making into the forefront of our country to help address some of the biggest issues that we really are facing today. Here, Heapuapu, at the heart of it, is a progressive draft idea for how Aotearoa New Zealand in 2040 could become compliant with the Treaty of Waitangi. These kind of bigger conversations around how a country can move towards being more respectful of their Indigenous peoples, to be more compliant with international law around how we ought to be as a country democratically recognising Indigenous peoples. These are conversations taking place elsewhere. So for example, Canada has just passed legislation Very similar to what we have envisaged in He Puapua. So Canada has now legislated for their action plan to become more respectful of their Indigenous peoples. And that's all He Puapua is about. And I think that's super exciting for every one of us in this country.
0: But is it democratic?
3: Yeah, I fundamentally do think it is. I think democracy in our country, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, is about valuing the people in this country, about valuing who we are as New Zealanders And Māori are a significant, important part of the New Zealand identity and who we are as a country. Uh, Māori are tangata whenua, they're the first peoples here in this country, living here for hundreds of years, who invited others to join and live with them in this country. And so, coming back to that amazing principle in Te Ao Māori about manaakitanga, and about valuing and welcoming everyone in this country, if we approach it from that point of view as an opportunity rather than as a threat, yes, it is democratic. It's entirely democratic. Democracy is about participation. And if we can have more Māori participating in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that is fundamentally democratic.
0: Ko Māori koe, ko you You're Māori, I'm Pākehau. If her was realised, would we have different rights?
3: No, I think I think we would all have enhanced, amazing opportunities to contribute to this country. So as being Māori, being Pākehā, um, being Pacific, being Asian, realising a commitment to Te Tiriti o Waitangi I think is a really positive, amazing move for all of us as New Zealanders. It gives us all as New Zealanders a much firmer place to be of these lands. It helps open up all of our eyes to what it means to be a New Zealander. So the the lands and the place that all of us as New Zealanders love, why don't we also want to know about how Māori really engage with those lands? What are Māori aspirations and hopes and dreams for these lands that they have cared for for hundreds of years? So an opportunity I think to open up those kind of conversations is, I think, an amazing opportunity for us as a country. And I would really, really hope that by recognising a compliance with Te Tiriti te o Waitangi, a real realising of an opportunity to grow um, joint joint decision-making to grow the tenoranga-teiratanga sphere in this country is going to result in amazing positive things for our country, that we're all going to be so much more confident in who we are. We're going to have at our decision-making tables Māori knowledges, um, Māori solutions, sitting alongside hundreds of years of incredible Western sciences and technologies. All we're doing is trying to add to the table more ways of understanding the world
0: I realise here is just a proposal, but one of the suggestions is a Senate or Upper House that could, quote, scrutinise legislation for compliance with Te Tiriti. Would that be exclusively for Māori?
3: So the idea of a Māori Upper House was just one of hundreds of different ideas uh, that we should and could be debating in Aotearoa New Zealand as an opportunity. Um, It would provide a an incredible, powerful Māori lens on legislation that's already working its way through Parliament, where we as all New Zealanders – Pākehā, Pacific, Asian, have an opportunity to be represented in that whole Parliament process.
0: But I, being Pākehā, wouldn't have that representation.
3: By adding in an opportunity to have Māori sitting in um, an upper, in A upper house, um, that there might also be another decision-making layer over and above that. Um, so there's a lot to work out exactly where that where that Māori uh, Senate might sit uh, within Parliament, and so. Um, is, no, and I, and I think that, that just really starts to embrace, I think, for us as a country, a Te eating model. It really starts to empower a Māori decision-making body. It gives visibility as a country, as a nation, to Māori decision-making, and uh, where we could really see our parliament operating um, in that way.
0: Isn't this a binary conundrum? Isn't there no way to ensure greater representation for Māori, without it being at the relative expense of Uh, non-Māori?
3: So, I much more prefer to think about these issues as adding adding to what we already have. And I think we do need to be more bold and more deliberate about saying, yes, it is time now, it's 2022. It is time to now make space in our decision-making infrastructure for Māori to be part of our decision-making. We have more than 150 years in Aotearoa, New Zealand, that has built up democratic um, decision-making processes that have entirely favoured Parkia, and that has been very deliberate. Um, if we even go back into our history of our Māori seats in Parliament, they were deliberately ring-fenced as four seats back in the 1860s, because if we'd went on a population model back then, Māori would have had more seats in Parliament, but instead Māori were restricted down to those four seats. So while we might talk about our election, our Parliament being very democratic, and its foundations, it wasn't from a Māori perspective and it was all about confining that Māori voice. Now today we have an opportunity to really think and rethink what are our structures, what are our processes and how can we really with real validity add in a Māori contribution into our decision making in a way that is very mana enhancing for Māori and I'm really really excited to have that conversation as a country in a way that I think is going to make us more proud to be who we are.
0: That's Professor Jacinta Ruru. A couple of quick points. It's really important to note the Government has ruled out an Upper House of Parliament as suggested in He Puapua. The report's been out for consultation with Māori leaders and Minister Willie Jackson was planning to join us this morning to discuss it and to debate co-governance, but unfortunately he tested positive for COVID-19 yesterday. I spoke to him on the phone last night and honestly, he was in a rough place. So, kia to order. We hope you get well soon. After the break, you realise we already have several co-governance arrangements in place, right? We will show you where and how it's working so far. Maya, welcome back. Much of the co-governance debate stems from Heapuapua and the government's co-governing proposal in the Three Waters reforms. And those are unique in a sense in that they concern co-governance over public services. But there are already several co-governing arrangements established between Māori and the Crown over Te taiao, the environment, as a result of treaty settlements. Ngāi Tūhoi's, for example, is a unique relationship, allowing for the co-governance of Te Uruwera. Fina Owen went to the Tūhoi heartland to see how it works.
4: Te Uruwera, a vast expanse of rainforest and its gem within Waikarimoana. When a road was cut through, tourists ventured in.
5: Lake Waikarimoana lies in the heart of the Dominion's North Island. To reach it, a scenic drive takes us through rugged bushlands
4: and it lies in the homeland of Tuhoi, But there was little consultation in the 1950s when the government declared this area to be Uruwera National Park. Look at this. It's easy to see why this was a prized public asset. In 2014, Te Uruwera ceased to be a national park and of course now it's managed by Ngai Tūhoe in partnership with the Crown. How's it working?
2: The Department of Conservation and Tūhoe, they do come from different places.
4: Tūhoe's Te Uru Tau a Chairman, Tamati Kruger. Uh,
2: ideologies, philosophy, culture, language, Practice, and so, in the seven years we have found the collision points of those, and we've tried our very best, both parties, to work those things out.
4: So this year, Tūhoe leadership is keen to meet formally with the Crown to review their relationship.
2: So that's what we are, what, what we are planning to do this year of 2022, is Tūhoe and the Crown sitting down and having an honest assessment of how our post-settlement relationship have carried on. And both of us, I think, uh, are willing to work on improving it.
4: So there have been challenges?
2: Oh, uh, there have been exams without notification.
4: The past year has been a challenge. While Te Uruwera is now open to visitors, the Waikarimoana Great Walk and Lake was closed for six months because of COVID and urgent repairs needed on
2: tracks and huts. These were legitimate reasons. These were not fake. Have uh, been accused of fake Yes, things? yes. We, 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 ha- we have been accused of, of not being genuine, that somehow we were playing political games.
4: The Crown's relationship with Ngai Tūhoe although highly valued remains a sensitive one The Minister of Conservation and her department declined an interview with Q&A about how the co-governing around Te Uruwera is tracking
2: Co-governance is not our term Mana Motuhake is our term so uh, we are committed to washing away dependency on the Crown and and raising maximum autonomy for Tūhoe people.
4: The iwi works alongside many government agencies in collaborative projects like the three Tūhoe health centres and a roading project with Waka Kotahi. Tūhoe is also working with police to eliminate meth in their communities.
2: You wouldn't believe it, that but but after Operation Operation Eight, the so-called terror raids, uh, we now enjoy a really good relationship with the New Zealand Police.
4: In Taniarua, an eco-village is fast taking shape, built by Tuhoi tradies. It's the first of a projected forty villages in the rohe.
2: Building villages uh, will will give us the basis for rebuilding hapu, whānau and iwi. So it's, it's not really a response to a housing crisis, rather a cultural crisis. What do you want? Hey. 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 Where do you want it? Yesterday!
4: For Tomati Kruger and those who share his vision, the challenges have also been from within. Some kaumatua and hapu questioning decisions.
2: Yes, of course, there is disagreement. Uh, because you're dealing with generations, generations of being not who you are.
4: In a recent move, Tūhoe leadership is now meeting directly with heads of relevant government agencies.
3: Having helped
4: forge Tūhoe's partnerships with the Crown, Tamati Kruger is keenly observing the co-government debate beyond Tūhoe territory.
2: I am sad that there are people that are frightened by it uh, that that see that as some kind of robbery that it will steal something from them it will take something from them it is not it's not robbery it's not theft see it as the final destination I don't see co-governance as the answer but I, th- I think it's the next bus stop in a journey that has to be made it's everyone's journey it's, it's like gravity it's you, you, you can't defy it yeah. it's on its way
0: Fina Owen into Weda. After the break David Seymour wants a referendum on treaty principles. Give us a wave David. He's here. Next. Kia Oraiti, we welcome back. Act leader David Seymour wants a referendum to define the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi. Nationals ruled it out, but a petition on the subject has garnered more than 10,000 signatures, and David Seymour's with us this morning. Kia ora. Good morning, Jack. Our first in-studio guest in eight months.
5: It's nice to be back moving on from COVID,
0: isn't it? Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I don't know if I want to go that far. <laughs> I don't want to tempt fate, but it's great to <laughs> see you. So I've got to have hope. Uh, you have framed the referendum mm. as one on co-governance, but really your petition is about more than that, isn't it? It is about the interpretation of the Treaty of Waitangi.
5: Well, that's right. Let me start by saying I think the treaty is a magnificent document. If you read what it says, and I mean the modern English translation of the Maori version, uh, it says the Queen is sovereign, your property rights are secure, and everybody has the same rights and duties. I think that is a wonderful foundation for a country but the way that it has been interpreted, first by the courts, then by the Waitangi Tribunal, and then by the public service over the last 40 years, increasingly it's been said to be a partnership that therefore requires co-governance of everything. Now, co-governance in the context of treaty settlements, for example, Mm. the management of Auckland's volcanic cones, uh, I think that can be a good solution. I think there's been some real problems in Te Uruwera and that's worth looking at. But where this government is taking it, thanks to the courts and thanks to the Waitangi Tribunal, is that things that didn't even exist in 1840, Mm. healthcare, three waters, the funding of scientific research, who sits on the Environment Canterbury Council, you name it, the idea is now that there are some seats reserved at the table uh, because of your background being Māori. Now, that is a real problem, and as you saw in your interview with Jacinta Ruru, Uh, It's not an and-and. If you have some seats reserved at the table that you can't vote for, then you have public institutions that are not democratically accountable, and that has the potential to be catastrophic for New Zealand. What is Tino rangatiratanga? Well, I think it's the right to be able to self-determine. The question is, how do we fit that into uh, a a modern, multi-ethnic society? Uh, Does it mean that you have, first of all, the right to vote in free and fair elections, one person, one vote? And you notice that Jacinta Ruru couldn't answer that question for you in the earlier interview. Uh, or does it mean that we have two parallel governance systems where, for example, if you take Environment Canterbury, that current legislation in Parliament, uh, the people of Canterbury who live in the area and pay the rates get to vote for their representative. Mm. But then if you're part of Naitahu, uh, then you also get to appoint a couple of councillors to sit beside them. Uh, and that is a version of Tino Rangatiratanga that is incompatible with liberal democracy. What is compatible is more choices, more mm. devolution. So I supported charter schools, for example, because I said, look, I- anybody should be able to use the local knowledge in their community mm. to set up a school that, um, that, that, that engages the kids in their area.
0: I think it might be helpful for us to have a look at the petition as you've framed it. Mm. This would be the referendum mm. question that New Zealand would answer, so let's mm. have a quick look at this. Mm. The proposal says all citizens of New Zealand have the same political rights and duties... Uh, It also says that all political authority comes from the people by democratic means, including universal suffrage and regular and free elections with a secret ballot. And it says New Zealand's a multi-ethnic, liberal democracy, where discrimination based on ethnicity is illegal. Now you've used that term one person, one vote Mm. a lot in this debate so far. Have you considered for a moment that your one person, one vote definition is perhaps too simplistic? and that actually maybe democracy in modern New Zealand is more nuanced. It's a democracy that allows for the protection of and equity for a minority indigenous population that has been screwed over for the last 180 years. Mm.
5: Well, it's interesting again to go back to your earlier interview. Um, Jacinta Ruru said, look, in 1860 the vote was not proportional, the number of Māori seats was suppressed, that was wrong. Uh, The problem is that her resolution or her solution to that injustice, which I agree with her, Mm. uh, it was wrong, is to then do the opposite and again, have a disproportionate amount of political power uh, for one group of people, which as you rightly noted, can only come uh, at the expense of others. Now, the question is not, do we respect the treaty and do we go forward together? The question is, how do we interpret the treaty? And how do we go forward together? And do we do it according to liberal democracy? No, no, the question, or something the question is, what is liberal mm-hmm. democracy?
0: Mm-hmm. And, and while I, I, mm-hmm. I get it, the one person, one vote is, mm-hmm. a, is an attractive line and to, to many people mm-hmm. seems entirely appropriate, mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the truth is that modern liberal democracies are far more nuanced. They're far mm-hmm. more complex. I mean, if you know, I look back to June 2020, just mm-hmm. by, by way of example... Mm-hmm prisoners serving terms of less than three years in New Zealand were given the right to vote. One person, one vote. That's a Liberal democracy. It was supported by Labor, was supported by New Zealand First, supported by the Greens, opposed by ACT. Strange, because one person, one vote. I never heard ACT railing against rural wards, which is strange, because one person, one vote. The nature of modern democracies is that one person, one vote is a nice notion... But modern democracies are far more nuanced than that. There are far more elements that make up modern democracies.
5: Yeah, but you're conflating two things. First of all, uh, you don't get to vote till you're 18, but that's the same for everybody if you're convicted of a crime, you go to prison and you lose a bundle of rights, including, until recently, the ability to vote. And just and just remember, even Labor still won't let you vote if you're in there for a long time for a serious crime. Mm. So, but the, but the key issue is that those rules are no, the same for What I'm saying everybody. is that one, one, but one person, mm. one vote
0: is too mm. simplistic, is my point.
5: Yeah, and look, obviously there's going to be a set of rules around democracy, but what we're really talking about is, do you have a different set of political rights? That's mm. what's in our referendum. Mm. We we want to be able to let everybody in New Zealand have a conversation about our constitutional future and have a say about it at the end. Uh, so yes, you can argue mm-hmm. about what the exact electoral rules are. You could argue about FPP versus MMP, but what we can't argue about is that every person born in this country is alike in dignity and has the same political rights. That's what we're standing for. That's what Jacinta Ruru is opposed to. That's what co-governance but, is incompatible. What
0: you're arguing for is equality, but what mm. the treaty guarantees is equity. Article 3 mm. of the treaty is explicit. Mm. It guarantees equity for Māori mm. as a minority indigenous mm. population in New Zealand. Mm. And the those are subtle differences yeah. between equality and yeah. equity but surely equity is a more appropriate uh, solution for a country like New Zealand given its yeah. colonial past.
5: Well, I think it's very important that we achieve equity in a whole range of areas where we're not. I look at just about every mm. statistic, education, home ownership, welfare dependency, imprisonment. Uh, you know, there's big problems in New Zealand that we need to solve. So co-governance mm. is about providing that equity? Well, I don't believe, A, that code governance is necessary to provide that equity. And second of all, I don't think that it will. If you take resource management law, for example... Mm. Our big practical problem that as humans we need to solve is to plan, fund and build infrastructure so there's more homes so that everybody can have one. Mm. Now I think not only... Three storey homes? Not only... Oh look, I think they should be and if you look at the Auckland Unitary Plan they're widely available but that's another issue. Um, If we look at the co-governance agenda, what it's going to mean in the new resource management reforms is that you have even Mm. deeper consultation of iwi in every location before you can make a plan and get stuff built. that's actually going to work against the interest of everybody, including Maori, who want to see more homes built. But, this is, so, that not only is co-governance not necessary, not only is it not sufficient to achieve our equity goals, it actually works against them. Well, and well nothing because, else has been
0: sufficient for the last 180 years. And I mean, mm. Article Three of the Treaty mm. is fairly explicit in that mm. it guarantees Maori equity, mm. not equality, but equity. And, and, and mm. if you are to, to take a broader lens mm. and look at other democratic principles, mm. surely. It is not democratic for the Crown to back out of an agreement that it signed 180 Mm. years ago with no exit clause just because Mm. it doesn't suit parts of our population now.
5: Mm. But the question is, how do we honour it? And my contention is that we are now a modern, multi-ethnic society with public institutions that are democratically accountable, mm. equally accountable to every child born into this country who is alike in dignity with the same basic rights. That is what the treaty actually says. Now, if we want to talk about equitable outcomes, we need to get more homes built, but we also mm. need to give more choices. So I talked about charter schools. Let's talk about whānau The idea that you would have a navigator for a Farno, it might be Pacific, because they actually have Maori and Pacific versions of Fareora mm. to help them access the services so they can get out of the poverty trap and live good lives you know we support that but that's not co-governance mm. that is giving choices and everybody can have choices about how public services are delivered. It doesn't require somebody to have a seat reserved at the table that they can veto what everybody else gets as proposed in the healthcare re- legislation. So, again, co-governance is democratically unaccountable. It's bureaucratic. It actually stops us delivering the services we w- require to give people more equal opportunities. Are talking about
0: the Māori Health Authority? Mm. I mean, the Māori Health Authority is a crown entity,
5: mm. right? That isn't technically co-governance. That is a, that is an example of devolution as opposed to co-governance. But, I well, mean it's a it's a mixture because you you know it's charged with making health plans. Uh, together with healthcare, news, with Health New Zealand, and where they disagree, the minister has to mm. come in and play mum and decide who's right. So it's a combination of devolution and co-governance. I'll give you that. Mm. But I think we can do it with devolution and choice, letting people like charter schools, like Fanoa, mm. have services delivered their way without giving one side a veto over mm. what everybody else gets.
0: New Zealand in 2022 is a multi-ethnic society, but mm. fundamentally, and this is an awkward truth perhaps, the Treaty of Waitangi was signed between two peoples in 1840. I know that you have insinuated that Māori have a degree of special treatment, but that is the nature of the Treaty of Waitangi. The Treaty of Waitangi actually guarantees Māori a degree
5: of special treatment up to the point that they achieve equity. But but it, it doesn't. It says that all people have the same rights and duties. And that's why we want to have a referendum where ordinary people can debate but and D- discuss this. But David, being right. shouted down. The, the Maori haven't had the same
0: rights. maori haven't had the same rights for 180 years. That they are top of the list mm. when it comes to all the shitty things in New Zealand, and they are bottom of the list when it comes to all the good things. They have
5: never had the equity that is enshrined and guaranteed mm. under Article 3 of the Treaty. Well, first of all, I think this discussion is useful because it shows that there are two justifications for co governance that people slip between. One is that the treaty requires it because there's a partnership and there should be co-governance mm. of everything. I don't think that's true. The courts haven't said there's a partnership. They said there was a relationship akin to a partnership. And it certainly hasn't said that we need co-governance of everything. That's what this government under Jacinda Ardern has invented and increasingly applied through the public service. I mean, have they though? Ha- I mean, this is the other thing. You say that co-governance is everywhere. Mm. Clearly, there is a co-governance
0: mm-hmm. model that is being pushed as part of the Three Waters reforms. So I don't mm-hmm. think anyone is denying yep. that. Well, where else? In public well, also, services? in
5: healthcare. You take the plant variety well, rights. That's a, again, ta- that's a, ta- the
0: Māori ta- Health Authority is a crown entity. That that, mm-hmm. that isn't co-governance.
5: Well, it's, it's it's co-governance of healthcare overall because you have those two entities with joint decision making. Where else is it everywhere. Overall healthcare. Well, we've talked about ECan. You might not be familiar with the legislation for the Plant Variety Rights uh, Committee, but there will it's now hardly be hardly everywhere. Well, well, right. I think well, that, that's a pretty. <laughs> obscure example, but exactly. it's there. Yeah. Yeah. And, it's, and it's actually in the new funding of scientific research under MB's Green Paper. Mm. So, you know, actually, it's pretty difficult. I'd challenge you to name a major government initiative that isn't underpinned by this pervasive idea of co-governance. But going back to what you are saying before, I don't think the treaty calls for co-governance. It doesn't if you read what it says. Mm. Then the other justification you're giving is that if we had co-governance, we'd get more equal outcomes because we haven't already. Well, actually, I think we're going to do better as a multi- multi-ethnic liberal democracy at providing opportunity for Mm. all, then we will under co-governance. And I'll give you just one example. People say, oh, well, there's a difference in life expectancy of seven years. Mm. That's true. That's a problem. We need to do better at solving it. But what people forget to say is that in the 1950s, within living memory of many New Zealanders, the gap in the life expectancy of Māori and Pākehā was 20 years, now seven. Uh, that's an extraordinary amount of progress, and I think we need to keep and that so going. Continue, yeah, well, I, th- I think everyone would agree but with should, that. But should, we th- but should we throw out the system that got us there? Well
0: well, the well, 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 I suppose
5: the system hasn't got
0: us there, though. That's the thing, right? Well, We've well. done 180 years, and the question is, what, what, what else do we need to do to make sure that that last seven years is, is covered? Hey, very quickly... Um, What do you reckon would happen if we held the referendum? Let's Mm. say, just for the sake of argument, we held the referendum Mm. and that people agree with your assertions or your interpretation Mm. of the Mm. treaty as per your referendum questions. What do you think would happen to race relations in the immediate aftermath in New Zealand? Uh, uh, Can you you imagine a world in which things would get really, really ugly?
5: No, I think it would be an enormous relief because Mm. people would be able to come out and openly and politely say, actually, we think that democracy does mean one vote. We think that there are major challenges, but the way to solve our social inequities is to give people more choices, like whanawara charter schools, Mm. get more homes Mm. built and so on. I think that people would say, actually, we are proud to be a modern, multi-ethnic liberal democracy with people that have come from all over the world to give their children Mm. a better life. I think that instead of having this debate shrouded behind closed doors with people shouted down as being racist if they try and ask questions about our country's constitutional future, we'd actually be a more unified country. Mm. And I think we'd stop... Another thing that would happen that really worries me is the last five years, the regard that people have for te reo Māori and Māori culture... Has actually declined. It's been seen as something to be leery of. That's a real shame. I think we'd see it as something to be proud of and included as a kiwi and a kiwi mm. identity, where we celebrate all of the backgrounds of Aotearoa New Zealand. That would be a wonderful outcome for our country.
0: Thank you. It is an important
5: debate, and um,
0: yeah, we appreciate your time.
5: Thank you very much.
0: Cool, That is Q and A for this week from the Q and A team. Thanks for watching, and now Miki Kiacotoinga Karere. Thanks for your feedback. Hey, Te wiki. We are off next week for the Easter break, but we'll see you in a fortnight. Q and A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.